And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, why World of World Cup qualifiers? Brazil and Argentina open up a Pandora's box with mid-game COVID crackdown. England open up an Andorra's box in their latest 4-0 win. We check out those stories and more on the road to Qatar, Poland, how Spain lost their mojo, Northern Ireland and more. Plus, opening weekend in the WSL. Who were the big winners? How many days does Christmas last? And on this day, were the world's most famous head wounds and Wembley clearances. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hello, listener. Monday, the 6th of September, just about. We're a little bit later than usual. But hey, promises to be a very special show for you today with Daniel Story as ever. Hello, Daniel. Hello, James. Hello from the eye. Colin Miller, who's just arrived in Zaragoza. Hello, Colin. Buenos dias. Nice. Also with us, Flo Lloyd Hughes. Flo, where are you joining us from? Um, My bedroom in North London. Not as glamorous as Zaragoza, unfortunately. Looks pretty glamorous. You've been all over the country doing WSL on the opening weekend of said competition. Yeah, I've been in the north, the outskirts of Manchester on Friday night, um, Liverpool on Saturday, and then back down the road at the Emirates on Sunday. So yeah, a bumper weekend of women's football. Right, what an exciting game at the Emirates. We'll we'll talk about that in the course of today's podcast. How is Saragotha, Colin? It, it's very warm still. The, the summers here tend to go on a little bit longer, but uh, it's uh, no. It, it's great to be back because I I have sort of lived on and off in Spain for the past couple of years. So it's um it's it's the first time I'm back in just over a year due to due to all the pandemic and the, the restrictions and travel. Right. So it's so it's good to it's good to be back over again. Excellent. All right, in a country reeling from their first defeat in World Cup qualifying. For decades, uh, Daniel, you're about to make a, a trip, aren't you? Next week, you're off to Warsaw to see Poland against England. Yes, Tuesday morning flight, Thursday morning return, in and out. But my first football match since Leicester versus Villa in March 2020. So I am, yes, I'm excited, wow. very much. I'm a little bit worried that I've not, I've only jumped through seven of the eight hoops that I need to to get in and out of Poland. But that aside, I'm, I'm looking right. forward to it. Just don't write UK on your where you've been in the last 10 days. That works really (laughs) well, I think, for international fixtures. Yeah. Um, The last time you went to a football match was which, Mm. sorry? Leicester Villa, 4-0, March 2020 at the King Power. The last time you went to a game, Jack Grealish's team lost 4-0. Yes. uh, No huge concerns about exactly the same repeated scoreline. But, um, yeah, it feels like quite a lot's changed in... Not due to, but despite my absence from top right. flight football. Okay, let, let, let's start off today's Totally Show then with the exploits of 
Jack and the rest of the England crowd as they took on, well, Hungary last week and then on Sunday, Andorra. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Lingard not picked up and four it is, headed in by Bukayo Saka. At the very end, where, of course, his penalty caused such a disappointment for him and for his country back in July. But there are smiles now. Back-to-back 4 nils for Gareth Southgate's side after Thursday's victory in Budapest, of which more shortly. Sunday night, a rejigged England team played Andorra and racked up another four goals. Eleven changes to this team. You had Jesse Lingard coming in and scoring a brace. Pakao Sacco got a... A goal on his 20th birthday. Harry Kane with the other. He's now scored in each of his last 14 European or World Cup qualifying uh, matches. As I say, 11 changes of the new faces. Who did the, the most to kind of earn themselves a first-team role, would you say? I think probably Jude Bellingham. I think he has so much inherent goodwill now and there's so much excitement about his future that to an extent, I think if he plays a 7 out of 10 against a fairly poor standard of opposition, it is interpreted as an 8 or a 9 because... He is the future of England central midfield, I think. Um, and for a long time, the one thing England have lacked is a is a central midfielder who can really protect the ball, a kind of Rolls-Royce central midfielder. And I think he probably is that. And he, I think he was England's best player against Andorra, certainly of the starters. Um, it's a difficult, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a tap-in match, effectively. It's very hard to, to, to increase your popularity. But I suspect Bellingham probably just about did that. I mean, I thought Jesse Lingard was great. I'm I'm a big Jay Ling's fan just because I think he's a very joyful player to watch. He's got a big smile on his face. And I think when you've got a crowd paying a fair amount to come watch England play Andorra, I think you want to see someone entertain. He's obviously not playing a lot of club football, but he seems to still be in good shape to be able to turn it on. I mean, it's Andorra, but still, I thought he was. I thought he was brilliant yesterday, and he he brought some flashiness to proceedings. And I think people want to see that. I think there was a time in the second half where he did a great bit of skill and then nutmegged Andorra defender and won a free kick. And he he could have had a really good goal that was that was offside. So I just think it was nice to see him playing with a smile on his face, despite the fact that he might not be playing a lot of games this season. I think these games are largely. You, you don't learn much from them, of course, but they are important, as Flo said, about seeing players having a smile on their face and playing with a bit more a bit more freedom and a bit more self-expression. And just, just to be able to go out there and play yeah, against the standard of opposition who you're going to defeat and probably defeat very comfortably. But it's good for morale, it's good for the group, it's good for all these players to get minutes and just to get sort of that, that taste of international football. And it just it just makes every everyone hungry and, and ready for the next game. And, and I think that's that's probably the, the important thing that Gareth Southgate will learn. I don't think he's going to make any any changes to his starting eleven going forwards based on this one match, but but it will be a huge benefit for the players. And and as you said, it's all it's all about the self confidence and and being able to, to embed themselves in the group and and, and just to play with that, that smile in their face and to play with confidence in this stage. And and Saka, the birthday boy, got a goal. Bamford, the other birthday boy, didn't unfortunately. But I think that was great. I mean, obviously the crowd wanted to see Saka do well. He's had brilliant receptions up and down the country since the Euros. And I think that was kind of like the icing on the cake to see him get goal, to see the crowd really enjoy that. And it seemed like quite a nice atmosphere as well on the TV. Much more a family crowd, which, you know, you know, it's not for everyone. But it was, it seemed like a nice sort of welcome home for the Euros guys. And I think that was important for them to kind of feel the love and not feel the hostility, which is what the summer of kind of, summer of... um 
end of days kind of felt like at times. Yeah, and not just the summer, just a few days before the trip to, to Hungary, which saw certainly the second half a brilliantly uh, assured performance and another 4-0 win, but a lot of outrage over the behaviour of uh, the fans at the Pushkas Arena with monkey charts and projectiles aimed at uh, England players. Uh, as you you probably know, the stadium was on a three-game crowd ban from UEFA, but this being a FIFA fixture, that somehow didn't apply. Were there more lessons to be drawn from, from that game against a perhaps a tougher opponent? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Uh, England have become supreme in, in qualifying, um, but winning that game was, was vitally important because it means that if calamity occurs in Poland and England lose that game, they will still top the group if they win all their other matches. Um, Poland away should be the, the hardest game of the group. They were poor against Poland at home and it was a Poland without Robin Lewandowski at the time. Um, he will he will certainly play on Wednesday night and will cause England more problems than probably any other individual player in this group. Um, so yes, it was, it was hugely important. I mean, England are absolutely a machine in, in, in these qualifying matches. You know, Hungary away, we saw them in the Euros with that crowd behind them behaving despicably or otherwise is not an easy thing to deal with. And you know, England, they do this, they seem to do the same in every game. They kind of soak up any pressure, avoid any disaster in the first third of the game and then start to express themselves and prove themselves far more capable than any side they've met in this group other than that Poland at home game. And players like Raheem Sterling are just becoming absolute leaders of this team in terms of performance and um, yeah Southgate will have been absolutely delighted it felt very very similar to the Ukraine game in the Euros when England that time scored early and then expressed their lead this time soaked up a little bit of pressure and then just completely decimated the opposition and you know teams like Ukraine and Hungary England used to struggle against those types of teams we shouldn't take that for granted that we are now suddenly swatting them aside yeah, soaking up a fair amount of liquid from the supporters as well in, in the form of the, the cups that were raining down on Raheem Sterling and others and, and Declan Rice and Jack Grealish uh, endearing themselves to the to the, the fans watching from home uh, by mock drinking from, from those cups. Just generally another another uh, sign of the, the relaxed and, and unified nature of this team. More positives, Daniel. Yes, yeah, they are They are all positive. I know people are predisposed to be fearful about England and kind of point to the negatives and, and point to what England can't do or perceived as not being able to do rather than what they can, but they deserve more than that. Um, they are brilliant in qualifying. If you look across, you know, you look across the qualifying groups, you've got Spain in a little bit of a pickle with Sweden, you've got France a bit stop-start, you know, Italy drew against Switzerland. Germany only went top of the group after beating Armenia other teams are struggling and there's only really England and Denmark who have probably taken charge of their groups. Um, it's not it's not the hardest group England will ever face, but Poland and, and Hungary are banana skin teams and England have proved themselves capable in recent years of managing to avoid the banana skins that they used to trip over or slip on, should I say. Just to kind of echo what, what James said about the, the, the cup drinking sort of jokes from the, the team I think a good litmus test for me for how the general public are appreciating England or the interest the amount of interest in the general public is my friends who don't really follow football and how much they're paying attention and how much they know what results are in off from friendlies or qualifying games and the fact that my friends were talking to me about how funny that they found it that 
Rice and Grealish were drinking from those Coca-Cola cups. I think that's a brilliant sign that this huge interest and huge love and outpouring of love for that England side hasn't just completely evaporated after the Euros. People still really, really love these guys. And I think there's a huge, not just celebrity in the kind of way that we've known celebrity footballers in the past, like the Beckhams and, and the Roonies. It's it's more of an emotional bond and connection that those players had at the time. It's it's actually just a pure love. And I think the fact that that's continued and people that really love these guys and what they stand for, I think that's brilliant. Yeah, they also, that, that kind of emotional bond is seen as a uh, a kind of unusual thing, I think, as well in, in major nations. You know, it's it's deeply patronising to to Wales and Scotland. What I'm about to say, but they do feel a greater emotional bond, and the same. Colin, I'm sure, will say applies to Northern Ireland because they are perceived as underdogs. When you're a major nation, especially in qualifying, you are expected to win every game, and if you don't, it's a calamity. And if you don't, it it threatens to break that bond we have with the team. But you're absolutely right, Flo. It's qualifying used to be seen as a just a dirge to go through, a, a kind of annoying yeah. fly in the ointment of a Premier League season. And I think this time it does feel a little bit different because we can make 11 changes and it be packed with young players that we like. It's great. And Daniel, the, the question we were asking on Thursday was having come so close in the final uh, 50 odd days ago at Wembley, do you see signs now that England has learned its lesson or that Southgate has learned his lesson and that this is a team that can go all the way? Next time? I think the vagaries of international football are such that you are pretty much only ever able to replicate that test the next time it comes in a major tournament. And I think the next time it does come in a major tournament, there will be supporters who are, you know, and people in the media who are kind of beset by doubt until England disprove it. Two things I'd say against that. Firstly, we are seemingly taking an extra step each time. And secondly, that's why the young players are so important. That's why the, making 11 changes and still winning games comfortably is so important because it gives a, a freshness to, to proceedings and also a, a competition for places that hopefully kind of ignites further improvement from those players. You look at players, two years ago, Jordan Henderson would be one of the first names on England's team sheet. Now he's battling probably three players ahead of him in the queue if you include Jude Bellingham in that. That's the sort of thing that can ignite progress and that's the sort of thing that can make things different next time I think Mm. all right well Poland is next for England if the three lines can keep a clean sheet in that game it will set a new record for England of 12 clean sheets in a calendar year where the previous record was of course 11 in 1966 Poland by the way struggling with clean sheets they conceded to Albania they conceded to San Marino on Sunday night imagine doing that anyway Uh, Let's hear after this a little bit more about what else happened in the wide world of World Cup qualifying. Ah, the summer was fun, wasn't it? No allegiances, everyone getting behind England, three lions being sung everywhere. But now the Premier League is back, get Grealish off the bench, Ah, he can stay on it at City. Pickford might have been a safe pair of hands, now he's just a pair. And enough of Jules Rimet dreaming, now it's our turn to dream. So kiss goodbye to that vomit-inducing unity and welcome back proper football. Let's celebrate flair on the grass, not a flare up the... <coughs> Paddy Power! 18plusbegumbleaware.org This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. 
The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. World Cup qualifiers. Netherlands Turkey is coming up on Tuesday. That's going to be big. Turkey leading by one point in that group. They beat the Netherlands in March. Germany are now two for two under Hansi Flick and back on top of their group. A group which features Iceland, of course, uh, who saw in their clash on Sunday with North Macedonia, Idaga Johnson's son. Is his name Idaga Johnson's son? I don't know. But anyway, he scored for Iceland. It's the third generation to do it. Good John presumably started the ball rolling on that one. Spain are back on top of their group. A Colin, after their shock loss last week to Sweden, which was their first World Cup qualifying defeat for 28 years. Wow. Yeah, when I when I heard that stat, I, I couldn't really believe it. It's such an incredible record of longevity. But yeah, it actually it leaves Spain in a in a bit of jeopardy in their in their qualifying group because they had slipped up previously at home to Greece, which was a which was a bit of a surprise. And when you look at Sweden and how strong a team they have, they've made a hundred percent start. And you kind of think Spain now need to sort of win that reverse fixture in the group to to really be in for strong chance of, of topping the group. And you, they don't want to end up being in a playoff, but they, they did respond pretty well on Sunday, albeit at home, the, the, the relatively weak Georgia side, the one 4 nil. And again, it, it's this question with the Spain team, though, is that when you look at their record and you contrast their form in Spain to their form outside of Spain, in their last 12 games outside of Spain, including, of course, that little run of games in the Euros and the knockouts, they've only won one of their last 12 matches in, in that run. And that was actually a, a 90th minute winner against Georgia, who had 10 men at the time. So they they really need to sort out that, that away for them to... To, to really get that consistency and Daniel was speaking earlier about how England are, are a machine through qualification and, and, and it's totally correct and you see these other big nations including Spain who who do have a couple of difficulties now in terms of overcoming these uh, I wouldn't want to call them lesser nations but in, in terms of the in terms of the quality of player they have available they struggled to break them down and I think one of the criticisms that has been leveled at Luis Enrique is that you know he's obviously a very a very high level coach and he's he's achieved a lot in the club game but it's the same almost with every Spain side of the past five or six years that they play with so much control over the game. They have so much possession, but they just don't take enough risks. Well, they are one point ahead of Sweden, but Sweden have two games in hand, worryingly for Alazarokas. Uh, why were they um, playing this game against Georgia at a third division club, Colin? Yeah, they were playing this game in, in Badajoz, which is right on the on the border with Portugal and in, in the sort of southwestern corner of Spain. It, it's a very remote city. They've never had a club in the top flight of Spanish football. They're currently in the sort of regionalised third tier. Um, but but what the Spanish FA have done um, over recent years is to try to to try to export all their home games across across the country to all the autonomous communities and little regions where whereby fans might not be able to see the national team very often. They don't want to be seen as as Madrid centric. And yeah, this it's actually interesting because this stadium in Badajoz was part of the Spanish uh, World Cup bid for 2018, which obviously it, it failed. But but the, the stadium holds 15,000, but those plans would have been to increase it to 45,000. And the home club, uh, Badajoz, only get about 2,500 regularly So, in attendance. So it would have been the, the sort of equivalent of, of Queen's Park playing in, playing in Hampton Park with five, five or 600 fans. But it, it's, it's one of those things whereby all these smaller places within Spain have tried to make this leap from being a, from being a sort of 
semi-professional senior club into the kind of elite of, of La Liga in the past decade or two and, and Badajoz built this new stadium but it came at the cost of their, of their sporting side and yeah it, it's, it's a bit of a strange location but this is, this, is what, this is what the Spanish FA tend to do with a lot of their games Okay but there's a kind of drawing together the regional identities principle but behind it all Interesting. All right. Well, so uh, delicate times then for Spain on top of their group. Closer to home, depending on where you live. Scotland got back to winning ways with a 1-0 victory over Moldova on Saturday. That one goal in that game, only the second one that they've scored in their last five matches with 62 attempts. Scotland currently lying third, two points behind Israel in a group headed by Denmark, who Daniel was mentioning before. Scotland are only one ahead of Austria, though, who they'll be facing on Tuesday. That's a big game. Republic of Ireland lie fourth in their group. They're five points behind Luxembourg. Yikes. Republic of Ireland followed up their late disappointment with Portugal, where they had seemed set for a win until Cristiano Ronaldo struck late on by very, very nearly losing at home to Azerbaijan. Again, it was a late goal, this time from Shane Duffy, earning them a point. Stephen Kenny now with one win from 15 matches in charge. That came from a friendly encounter against Andorra. Um, How long is the patience going to last for Stephen Kenny? Yeah, Stephen Kenny, it's an interesting one because uh, he's had a lot of success um, domestically, uh, especially with, with Dundalk in recent years. And, and for him to come in, he's tried to implement this this sort of new style of football, a lot more progressive from maybe the, the previous managers that were in charge. And, and that takes, I think there, there was an acceptance that this takes a lot of time and a lot of patience and, and they're maybe prepared to give it one or two campaigns. But I think when you look at the results, um, I mean, losing to him to Luxembourg, only scraping a, a last minute draw, a late draw against Azerbaijan, I mean, that is not good. They're creating they're creating opportunities, but it, it's this old age old problem for nations like the Republic of Ireland, like Scotland, as you, as you said, and, and like Northern Ireland too, whereby you, you you can play quite well, but without that sort of goal scoring threat in the final third, and, and that's that's why players like Gareth Bale just just transform mm. wheels because they, they, they whenever you have that player who can deliver goals, it, it changes it changes everything. It obviously changes the results, but it changes the mood within the camp and the belief in what they can do, and I think the players have, have tried to buy into what Stephen Kenny is trying to implement but I think the flip side of this is it in, in the Republic of Ireland and in Northern Ireland when managers or players come up sort of through the domestic ranks there tends to be there tends to be elements of the fan base who maybe don't follow those clubs who are a little bit sceptical of just uh, are, they, are these guys cut out for this stage and I think those questions are now starting to emerge so it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how the FAI deal with this, but I I would be patient because I think this is a similar situation to Michael O'Neill, who obviously used to manage Northern Ireland, and now he's doing very well with Stoke City. But he came in and and for one or two campaigns the results were not good, but you could see the improvement in the style of play and, and what he was trying to do, and, and eventually that that brought success. So I I would I would have patience with him. I've certainly given the rest of this campaign and, and they allow him to build something and, and see if he can turn it around. Okay. Stick with Kenny, says Colin. Uh, Oh, Gareth Bale, who you mentioned there, with a hat-trick for Wales in their 3-2 win away in Russia, but against Belarus, because obviously Belarus is not somewhere you can visit right now. Uh, Flo, uh, was this the least inspiring hat-trick you've seen in a long time? Yeah, um, I mean, it was very difficult for Wales to even get there in the first place. Um, They've had various issues, covid uh, visas, um, injuries. So they kind of made life difficult for themselves even before they'd got on the pitch. Um, 
we know that there is a massive reliance on Gareth Bale anyway within that Welsh team and it kind of came through again. The goals they conceded were pretty poor, but he managed to drag them back and, and get three points. But I know, you know, as a team, um, watching kind of the, the post-match afterwards, they know they basically need to stop making life really difficult for themselves because they continue to do that. They love to punish themselves and I think they need to get out of that headspace because when they do have all the right players at their disposal which they should hopefully for the rest of this qualification campaign they can be a really good side I mean Daniel James played yesterday he's always a player that works really hard and and he could be a really good outlet for them Aaron Ramsey wasn't there yesterday Kiefer Moore wasn't there so they were missing a lot of players but they just need to be they need to be smarter they need to be more organized they just concede really sloppy goals and then are basically relying on Gareth Bale to to drag them back into contention but I think as soon as they can fix that then they could have a really good chance of qualifying but the problem is they just always punish themselves currently lying third in the group behind the Czech Republic and Belgium who have a six-point lead in first let's cheer cheer up any Welsh fans listening with the moment that Gareth Bell rescued the three points with his third goal Colin, back to you with Northern Ireland. Crikey, two wins. Uh, Counting the friendly with Estonia on Sunday. But before that, a 4-1 victory away to Lithuania, which was the first win you've had under Ian Barraclough. I don't know why I'm telling you this. You know this. But Northern Ireland's first competitive victory since 2019. Crikey. How, how inspiring was that? It was an unexpectedly emphatic victory. I mean, I think, look, first of all, Lithuania are not a good side. They're not a strong side. But Northern Ireland hadn't gone away from home and scored four goals in 14 years. So that that was quite an impressive achievement. And again, we've spoken about the lack of goal scores at, at international level. And, and that, that, again, has been the problem for Northern Ireland. So, so to get that out of the way was, was good. It's a, it's a morale booster. And to follow it up with a, with a friendly win in, in Estonia, the game's relatively little importance. But it's good to keep that confidence up and to build it ahead of a, a crunch game at home to uh, Switzerland on, on Wednesday. Right. And it's, it's, this, it's really, this one is actually really important from a, from a Northern Ireland perspective in the sense that they had a slow start to the group. They lost in Italy. They, they had a bit of a disappointing draw at home to Bulgaria in a match that they dominated. But Bailey Peacock-Farrell, who is not Sheffield Wednesday, he made a fantastic save at, in, in the last minute. And again, he was very important in Lithuania because he saved the penalty at 2-1. And, and it's those big moments and that, 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 that can sort of transform a campaign. And, and now when you've got a little bit of momentum behind you, I think Northern Ireland are going into this, the, the, these sort of crunch games with, with with a bit of optimism and a bit and a bit of hope and a bit of a feel-good factor. And it'll be important as well to, to play in front of 16,000 capacity stadium with, with fans back in at Windsor Park. And that's those are the sorts of nights and atmospheres that became pretty special in recent years. And, and if they can replicate that, then then maybe they have half a chance of, of, of perhaps even, even getting a playoff spot, which might might be might be beyond them this campaign, but but there's something to build on. Fourth in the group, but could be second by the end of Wednesday night when they host Switzerland at Windsor Park. And there's a bit of previous with the Swiss, Colin. Yeah, there's a there's a lingering sense of a of a miscarriage of justice. I think is the best way to put it because Northern Ireland came so close to that World Cup in 2018, and and they reached the playoffs um, and they faced the Swiss, and it was it was only decided by one goal over the two legs, and that was a handball from Corey Evans. Now. 
the decision was a highly contentious one. Um, I, I would encourage people to, to sort of seek this out on YouTube. He sort of sort of turns his back to the ball, and the ball sort of hits him in kind of the upper shoulder area. Um, and I just think it was an incredibly harsh decision. And there's, as I said, that would have been such a special occasion for Northern Ireland to, to qualify for the World Cup after their success at the Euros. It would have been a monumental achievement. Um, the, the overperformance that, that was carried out over years was 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 genuinely quite special, and in that moment, kind of felt like kind of felt like things had been deflated a little bit, and you know that, that those, those are the sorts of things that it's very very difficult to take when you when you're from a smaller nation, but and, and then it gives you that sort of sense of a rivalry against Switzerland, obviously who've who've, who've mm. done so fantastically well in recent tournaments, and it's going to be a, it's going to be a really tough game, and without Granite Xhaka potentially um, it, it could, could open things up a little bit and a game with the home advantage that if Northern Ireland were to, were to get a victory here it would really it would really make that group very interesting in terms of the top two or three spots Yeah, Granite Xhaka who was absent from Sunday's nil-nil between Switzerland and Italy after testing positive for COVID after previously deciding not to take a, a, a vaccine Nice to see Jose Mourinho weighing in on this issue shy reclusive uh, Mourinho uh, putting on his Instagram uh, message, uh, get the jab, Granite, and be safe. Wise words. Wise words. Nil-nil between Switzerland and Italy, uh, with Jorginho missing another penalty. So Italy did make it to 36 games unbeaten, which is a new world record, everybody. In fact, they're, they're just, I think, three days short now of going three full years without losing a match. But the uh, morning papers in Italy... Uh, Talking about bitter records, they're con- extremely worried about the fact that the Swiss are now jostling behind them for top spot and their inability, once again, to put the ball in the back of the net. Italy will be facing uh, Northern Ireland on the 15th of November. That's going to be another big game at, at Windsor Park. Uh, also in World Cup qualifying, you had world champions France drawing 1-1 in Ukraine Saturday night. They're now five games without a win. They've only taken nine points from the possible 15 in qualifying so far. They host Finland on Tuesday. Could be a game to watch that because Finland are right behind France and they have, well, they're right behind. They have four points behind France, but they have two games in hand. And hello, last time they went to Paris back in November of last year. What did they do? Yes, a 2-0 victory for Finland less than a year ago. Will it happen again this week? Crikey. Uh, Well, with the international excitements set to continue over the next few days, next up... Let's find out what on earth happened Sunday between Brazil and Argentina. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. With Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. Think of it as your protection against Arsenal doing an Arsenal. And in the words of Jennifer Aniston, here comes the science bit. Pre-match bet builders only. Get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs. Max free bet is £10. Enhanced match odds are not included. Online exclusives only. T's and C's apply. And please be gambleaware.org. Yeah, Brazil, Argentina, top two in South American qualifying, neighbours, massive rivals, etc. Facing each other on Sunday in Sao Paulo. Uh, when four minutes in, this. No me digas que van a montar 
este circo en la previa en el desarrollo del partido esto Pero es una que a cosa los cinco minutos arranque este debate este es un debate para los días previos al partido Argentine commentators left bewildered as health officials amassed on the sidelines and then attempted to detain four of Argentina's squad. Emi Martinez, Christian Romero and Giovanni Lo Celso, who were all playing, and also Emi Buendia, who wasn't part of the squad but was present. You'll notice that those four all play in the Premier League. And Visa, a Brazilian uh, health department, wanted them all deported because, according to reports, they'd all lied on their visa application or on their entry documents for coming into Brazil to play the game about having been in England within the last two weeks. How Anvisa ever discovered that these four players had been in England remains a mystery. Anyway, Anvisa went off to the team hotel once they discovered they were there or been notified, found the players apparently had already left for the stadium, so Anvisa went to the stadium but got stuck in traffic, which happens in Sao Paulo, uh, got there with the game already underway. They had notified the CBF, the Brazilian FA. The Brazilian FA said, no, we're giving clearance for this to go ahead. When they got there, there was a bit of a face-to-face between the two parties. And Anvisa apparently pulled rank on the CBF and said, no, we are pulling these four players. They had apparently warned the Argentines not to field them, to leave them behind in the hotel, because Brazil hadn't been able to use any players from uh, the Premier League in this fixture. And that's why they... That's why they came to take the players away. The Argentine players locked themselves in the locker room and subsequently all flew home together after the game was suspended following this action. What happened next, Daniel? Firstly, I'd just like to say, finally, vindication for my theory that admin can be exciting and sexy because it it was better to watch than the game would have been. It was phenomenal, kind of Benny Hill-esque, where you had like Messi coming out in a photographer's vest to try and learn what was going on. And that kind of semi-iconic photo of him and Neymar pulling exactly the same, Mm. what the heck is going on pose. Um, But yeah, I mean, effectively, the game was suspended. Uh, The Argentine players were, uh, were allowed to leave the stadium on a coach. All of the Argentine players were allowed to leave on a coach. And... It seems we're also allowed to leave on a, on a plane out of the country. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess maybe Anvisa got their wish in that they kind of all the players deported themselves on a plane, but they they didn't actually. The, the only thing they did of note was stop a game being played. They didn't stop the players mixing with anyone. They didn't stop the players going mm. to the stadium. And you, I mean, it's a very obvious thing to say, but you wonder why at the point they realised that the players were already starting the match and they hadn't managed to intervene, that was probably the time to let it lie. That was probably the time to accept that this was going to happen. Um, But genuinely extraordinary scenes and very funny scenes for people 5,000 miles away to watch. I mean, it's up there in the Pantheon, up with with Enna Valencia racing away from the child support payment police on a golf cart. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I, I saw a few people say this has beaten that. I, I don't think it has. I think that's no. still the high point of Commonwealth qualifying for me. It's, it's probably ironic as well in a nation that I think we've seen not probably handle the pandemic particularly well to suddenly be the kings of admin when it comes to people cheating on their um, landing cards. I found that quite surprising. Now is the time to take it seriously when it's when it's a bitter rivalry in a football match. With the, and, and that's an interesting point, Flo, because... A lot of people are suggesting that there's stuff going on behind this, that it wasn't purely that they only got to the stadium four minutes afterwards, that this was essentially a bit of a power play, either from one department to another or possibly from the Brazilian government to the CBF. There's suggestions they were upset about the CBF offering to host the Copa America. There's there's a million different theories flying around, and I suspect that'll continue for, for, for a while. 
well, we should say that if there is one corner of world football that hosts its more than its fair share of conspiracy theories, South America is more than happy to play its part. Um, yeah, I mean, the the kind of underlying conspiratorial undertone, I think, was that, that Brazil had had not selected players from England and Argentina had been pretty adamant that they would select players from England. I think that was probably the starting point for a a potential ruckus, but I don't think anyone saw it quite ending in this kind of Benny Hill style with men in suits with paper in their back pockets chasing Argentine footballers across the pitch. Mm. All-time world champion probably in police intervening in football match, though, would, would have to be 1980 in Totonero when the where the um, the state police and the Guardia de Finanza, the financial police, actually drove their vehicles onto the Stadio Olimpico uh, turf uh, in, in prelude to arresting everybody as part of that massive, massive scandal, Calcio Scomessi. Anyway, oh, we should also mention what the Brazilian players did afterwards to keep the crowd entertained. Yeah, they had a. They decided, which was probably a pretty savvy move, that rather than telling tens of thousands of people to immediately leave the stadium they put on a bit of a, a training ground friendly show kind of intra-squad friendly in which reserve goalkeeper Weverton scored a, a glorious goal and, and Chiche kind of disappointed the crowd with his lack of match fitness shall we say where does Weatherton play his club football yeah sadly he doesn't play at, 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 at Goodison um, and sadly his middle name isn't Woodison um, but he plays at Palmeiras. All right, which is a, a lovely place to, to ply your trade. Uh, by the way, another mad World Cup news. Uh, are we going to be having the World Cup every two years? Is that the way this is moving with this kind of constant drip of comments and suggestions and approvals or otherwise? Yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting situation because this is something that, that FIFA are are really pushing for, and Arsene Wenger has sort of come out as this sort of cheerleader for for a World Cup every two years. And there's, there's so many there's so many issues with this, and so many um so many problems, particularly from a, a fan's point of view, that the fact that the World Cup is is so special because it is every four years, and then the the sort of follow up question is, is then well, what happens to the to the European Championships? And and I think that's why mm. UEFA have a little bit of pushback on this. So it's gonna be an, it's gonna be interesting to see if UEFA sort of come out publicly uh, against FIFA on this I think they might Right oh, Sheffrin certainly has been saying he, that there are grave concerns about it so it seems that's how you wait for a, a position themselves. I've got to say we have Christmas every year and Christmas is, is pretty special I'm not sure that if the World Cup had been started all the way back in whenever and there's a great film about it United Passions I urge you to watch it um, if it had always been on a two-yearly cycle, that we would necessarily regard it as strange. If someone were to come along, Arsene Wenger, for example, now and say, instead of every two years, let's have it every four years, we'd think, well, that's madness, Prof. I'm happy to start or be the standard bearer of a campaign to get Arsene Wenger a sporting director role in club football so that he, he stops this I thought this you were going to say of... a sporting director role for Christmas. I was like, is that a new thing? <laughs> yeah. going? Nice. A sporting director of Christmas. I think it I think it stems from a kind of this is international football and therefore the governing bodies um only possible recourse to try and fight back against the kind of creeping um domination of club football um mm. to say well you want more football well how about three times more football how about we have world cup every two years how about we have club world cup that's increased and played over a month and I think it's just fighting fire with fire with no right. obvious successful end so is everybody against having a World Cup every two years, Colin? 
I, I, I'm, I'm against it because I, I, I think that the calendar they have at the minute is, is good. But at the same time, there is definitely an argument that there needs to be a, a sort of fundamental reform um, of, of how football is, is governed generally. And I think in that sense, new ideas are, are welcome. And international football is a bit of a leveller, isn't it? I mean, when you think mm. of the sort of the barbaric inequalities at, at club level, international football it sort of has a, a sort of a sense of purity about it in that way. And, and I think that's important to, to sort of maintain that. See, one thing that's not explained in the otherwise excellent United Passions is why they selected four years as a cycle, whether it was based on the Olympic model or whether it was just because of the logistics in those days involving people making trips in package steamers or whatever to get from one continent to another. It necessitated a certain amount of preparation and anything more than four years would have just been too much. The argument for, well, one of the arguments for having it more regularly is that you might be one of the world's great players and you might say have an injury at the middle point of the eight best years of your career, which would mean you'd never really have a chance to shine at the World Cup. As such, I'm not inherently against the idea of the competition happening more regularly, although I do accept that it rather mm. puts a kibosh on your, your Euros and that kind of thing. Yeah, the, the Christmas argument to me falls down because Christmas only takes a day as well. I mean, if, if right. the World Cup was played over... Four or five hours in Christmas a kind of only takes a day, stuff. Daniel. What year are you? Have you not been twenty-four little hours? <laughs> right. Well, I think you're missing that Month, months of preparation. Months of shopping. yeah. That's the Christmas final. There's all the playoffs. I revealed my petrol station. Y- yeah, my I was petrol station say, shopping you have, technique. You have revealed that. All right, Flo. Yes or no to a two-year World Cup cycle? Um, I'm going to say no because I really enjoy all the continental tournaments. So I would right. quite like the regional ones to carry on. Okay. Well, they could be every year. Just a thought. <laughs> I'm available for consultancy purposes, FIFA. All right. Uh, let's get some questions from uh, perhaps you, listener, if your name is Sasuheno, uh, who asked Colin, does the loan of Luke de Jong to Barcelona make any sense? He's been good in Eredivisie, but failed to succeed elsewhere. It does make sense um, in in the fact that Luke de Jong played under Ronald Koeman um, at international level for the Netherlands. He's he has been not prolific at club level, but he scores very important goals um, for Sevilla. He scored twice in the Europa League final against Inter. He scored once against United in the semi final. He scored the winner in a Seville derby, and he scored against Barcelona and Real Madrid in La Liga. Um, but yes, it's definitely a sign that Barcelona have uh, have scaled back uh, their, their expenditure and have, have almost gone for a budget loan signing. I mean, this this is a guy who was the third choice striker at Sevilla um, going into this season. So it's, it's a strange move in that sense. It, it probably makes sense from Ronald Koeman's point of view and it probably makes sense from Barcelona's economic realities. But it is a sign that, yes, whenever you have Luke de Jong, who is a former Newcastle striker, and I, I don't actually think he scored during that, that, that spell he had at the club, and Martin Brathwaite, who, um, of course, from, formerly of Middlesbrough. So... You kind of think, well, are they going to sign a former Sunderland striker now? Because this is a this is Barcelona we're talking about. This is a club who who've gone from what Messi and, and Griezmann and Nuzmani Dembélé, and and they've they've downgraded with, with these sorts of signings. And yeah, I mean, I, I like them as players, but at this level, I'm I'm skeptical that that it'll bring Barcelona much success. Hmm. Okay. Another question here, which is a it's a big one and one that's addressed on on the Athletic, for example. There's a piece at the moment about Ronaldo and the allegations against him. Adam says, is the reason you haven't discussed these allegations in any detail and instead largely eulogised him? Uh, Adam, there's not a specific reason except for the fact that these are allegations and as such, 
I personally, I think we all know about them, but I feel a little bit strange about discussing or bringing any kind of moral judgment on a case which somebody says they're innocent in and other people says they're not. I mean, there are forums, there are processes which determine these kind of things. And I don't think football podcasts necessarily are one of them, but absolutely it's it's right that this is a story that people should be aware of. Yeah, I would say educate yourself on on the story. Read the De Spiegel reports. Educate yourself on on the facts of the case. Um, but it, this, I hope, is a an insight and opinion football podcast. And I don't think I can offer any insight or opinion on the case. Oh, I'm glad you continued that sentence. Excellent, Daniel. Right. <laughs> One other bit of uh, World Cup qualifying news came from the Afcon matches flow. Yeah, a really bizarre and um, sounds slightly terrifying if you're the teams involved. Um, Morocco were in Guinea playing a, a qualifying game and the the team were, were at one point left stranded in their hotel because there was a coup in the country. They were in the, the capital of Guinea, uh, Conakry, I think. I don't know how you pronounce that, but I hope I haven't completely butchered that. But um, yeah, they were meant to be playing the game, um, but the countries had a coup and there were soldiers throughout the capital. It did seem like the Moroccan national team were going to have an issue getting out the country and home. But it does seem like on having looked online now today, they did get out, they did get out of their hotel and they have been able to fly home. But I think there were some concerns, understandably, that they were going to be stranded waiting for a way out. But yeah, pretty scary. I think there's a quotes as well from players saying they heard gunshots outside and they were obviously worried about their safety. But luckily they've got sent home. So yeah, mm. football never ceases to surprise, I guess. Well, I hope everybody in Guinea is similarly uh, safe as the, the Moroccan players. Women's Super League got back underway this weekend. Flo was all over it. and We'll hear about that next. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Iwabuchi, first-time ball. Goalkeeper comes. Mead is round the goalkeeper. Must score. Does score. A second for Beth Mead. And Arsenal increase their lead against the champions. All right. Man United's 2-0 win over Reading. Man City's 4-0 win at Everton. And Arsenal's 3-2 thriller against Chelsea on Sunday. What do they all have in common? One woman, Flo Lloyd-Hughes. Flo, tell us about it. Yeah, no, it was, it was a really good weekend. I think there's been a lot of hype and conversation around the WSL this season. And 
for lots of people who work in women's football, there's just this cliche now, I think, that surrounds the game, that this is going to be our year, you know, this is going to be the biggest year, this is going to be the biggest season. I think people certainly felt that way after the Olympics in 2012 and after the World Cup in 2019. But I do think the having good quality coverage now will lift the league to another level. Um, on Friday night, it was Sky Sports' debut and they had Karen Carney and Casey Stoney with one of those giant iPads doing some analysis and doing all that kind of stuff. And that is unique. You know, you don't really get that anywhere around the world in women's football. So to have that is amazing. I mean, BT Sport did great coverage, but the programme hours were very short. It was kind of 15 minutes in before kickoff, a brief chat, and then 15 minutes afterwards, just showing the goals and maybe getting post-match with the managers. There wasn't a lot around it. There wasn't a lot of in-depth conversation. So I think this that's going to make a huge difference. And I think we've already seen that. I mean, there was conversation around um, VAR and goal line technology. And I think the biggest priority at the at the moment in the WSL is actually getting the officiating up to standard before you even think about technology because the the officiating isn't good enough yet. And I think people who maybe haven't watched the league before who now might be watching it on Sky or on BBC One are going to see that. And it's something a lot of people in the game have complained about for a very long time. There is further professionalisation of match officials this season. So hopefully we'll start to see a bit of an impact there and the standards will improve. But that is an issue. It's an issue for women's football all around the world. Um, but yeah, really, really good weekend. I think the game at the Emirates was probably the highlight and I'm sure lots lots of listeners probably did watch that. And mm. um, yeah, it was a great way to kind of open the season. Okay, a 3-2 victory, as mentioned, for Arsenal over the champions. Chelsea, who is Arsenal's new manager, Jonas Sedeval? Yeah, he's he's come over from Sweden, had a lot of success um, at Rosengard, one of Sweden's biggest sides. Um, and he seems like a real character. I interviewed a few Arsenal players last week and they said that he loves a big celebration. I have to say, knee slide after your first league win is um, pretty bold. Um, that's, I think, something most people say for cup finals. But yeah, he, he seems like a character. The players really, really love him already. Um, he's trying, I think, to lift them to another level. Obviously, just like Arsenal as a club, as a whole, they've they've got quite a good identity in terms of the sort of football they play. Very possession-based. Um, maybe Arteta, not so much now. But that that classy Arsenal flair that we've known, it, you know, it feeds into the women's side as well. Um, but he's tried to bring a really intense high press to their game where I think perhaps they've struggled in the past, um, haven't been aggressive enough. And I think... You saw that yesterday and they had the luxury of having a really competitive pre-season because they've been playing Champions League qualifiers, whereas mm. half of Chelsea's squad were at the Olympic Games and have only just come back in and haven't had a great pre-season and the other half have been there for like two months and are kind of exhausted by a really long pre-season. So it's very early on in Chelsea's season and some of their best players aren't really up to speed yet, whereas Arsenal are absolutely flying. Um, they've got another Champions League second leg qualifier this week and look like they're only going to go from strength to strength. And the Hayes seemed to, after the match, think that, you know, Arsenal may tire out because they've had to start the season so early, whereas Chelsea probably will push on and really grow into the rest of their season. Uh, Emma Hayes was pointing out, uh, probably rightly, that one of the Arsenal goals was actually offside, so... Team perhaps unfortunate not to take anything from that game. Is there a little bit of an Emma Hayes backlash underway, though, in terms of reaction to Chelsea's recent performances? And do they also have a bit of a fullback problem? Yeah, the fullback situation is interesting. I did see after the game, 
she was asked about why they didn't get any fullbacks in the in the summer, and she said it's not that we didn't try, we just didn't get the ones we wanted. Um, and I was surprised at their formation yesterday. They played three at the back. They were playing players, Jess Carter specifically, in a right centre back role. She filled in at right back last season well, but it's not her natural position. Jonna Anderson, who had a good Olympic Games with Sweden, she is a natural left sided uh, player. She didn't start. Instead, they they started um, Neve Charles on the left, who filled in at right back last season. So it was a bit of a mishmash, and I, it just felt like Chelsea Emma Hayes probably didn't have the right players ready at the right time, and that's why she went with this formation. But it may have been smarter to go with a back four that you know served her so well last season, rather than than trying to do too much. But I think the fact that Chelsea still managed to t- score two goals despite being off the pace shows how good a side they are. But with the WSL, there's only 12 teams. If you drop points early on, it is quite hard to make up ground. So Chelsea got Everton next week, who were really disappointed against Man City, but have a lot of potential. Mm. So Chelsea will need to kind of pick up and and pick up points very quickly. Otherwise, Arsenal and, and City will just have too much uh, of a lead for them to be able to catch up. All right. City, who you saw uh, putting four past Everton at Goodison Park, are they going to make a lot of teams look that silly? I don't think so. I think Everton were really poor. And in the build-up to this game, people had higher hopes for Everton. They've blown their their record transfer on on a really exciting 18-year-old Swedish player called Hannah Benison, uh, who's a brilliant talent. She came on in the second half, but Everton were already 3-0 down, so she couldn't do anything about that. They've recruited really well, but they didn't recruit any defenders, and that certainly showed. Another team that played three at the back and a right wing back who's never played really in that position either. So I think Willie Kirk, their manager, will also do away with with, with three at the back going forward. Um, I guess for City, the bizarre thing was they didn't really have to try that hard to score their goals. And I think that's probably quite terrifying for, for the rest of the league. They've also had big injuries. Ellie Roebuck, their starting goalkeeper, is out. And Lucy Bronze, who a lot of listeners will know, has recently had surgery and is probably going to be out for quite a few months. So the fact that they managed to do that and not really have to work that hard for it is uh, is pretty impressive. And I think we have seen a kind of two, three horse race over the last few years. And I think we may see that again. But I think maybe hopefully Everton and United are going to push those other three a bit harder than perhaps they have over the last couple of years. Question from Kaz B here, who says, I was at Chelsea Arsenal on Sunday, or Arsenal Chelsea in fact, while just over 8,000 fans was a fine showing, would it be overly optimistic to expect more for a big game like this at the Emirates? Also, any plans for more WSL games at the stadium of the men's teams this season? Thanks. Um, I, yeah, I was disappointed at the attendance numbers. I expected a lot more. I mean, two of the best teams in the league with the biggest, some of the biggest names in the world, Kirby, Sam Kerr, Viviana Miedemar, Manu Ibuchi. I mean, you couldn't really ask for more um, for an opening a game, opening weekend, and the fact that it's a men's international break. I think the pre-season friendly between Arsenal-Chelsea, the Mind series friendly, double-header... It was 35 quid for tickets to that. And I think that did put some people off. Um, it's not, that's that's a pretty expensive day out. I think yesterday was more like 16 for an adult. Um, 
And I think there wasn't sort of enough consistent marketing. Arsenal actually sold out their initial allocation, but then there was about a two or three day window when they didn't put more tickets on sale. So if you'd gone on the website and tried to buy book a ticket, it would have said sold out. So I think there were some missed opportunities. But then for the second half of that question, in terms of will there be more games... A lot of the players and managers don't actually like playing in the men's stadiums. Um, mm. they're, inf- they're unfamiliar surroundings, much bigger pitches. I mean, Meadow Park in Kings Meadow, where Arsenal and Chelsea play, very tight, small grounds. And obviously, if you're used to uh, that sort of environment, it's really hard to then go play on a huge pitch. Um, and a lot of players and managers have been quite honest and frank with the fact that they actually would rather just play in the smaller grounds with better atmosphere. Meadow Park and Kings Meadow, over 4,000, and it is a really good atmosphere. And Derby games will be good there. Um, I think it's important not to just make them one-offs, but make them consistent, um, not events, but move it beyond just a kind of building up for this one big occasion and then everyone sort of forgets about it. Because I think we're stuck in that a little bit. We're stuck Mm. in that disjointed sort of, um, let's try and sell loads of tickets to the to the FA Cup final, get 50,000 people in, but then none of them go and watch women's football for a whole nother year. I think we've got to move beyond that and maybe becoming too obsessed with hosting matches in men's stadium means we never kind of build beyond just a one-off. We also have to realise, and I know not every listener will probably be aware of this, and, and Flo knows far more than me, I'm sure, but um, this will take time. You know, this is the first year of a, a brand spanking new TV deal. For for those that aren't aware, women's football is playing a, a deeply unfair catch up because it was you know it's very obvious for us to say, but it was it was it was literally banned for fifty years. Um, so you know it, you can't imagine that would happen to men's men's game because it never would because that's not how society works. But if it had, it would be as hard to to build up those deeper connections with clubs to you know, the game effectively or this country effectively told multiple generations of young girls not only that they weren't allowed to play, but that they therefore that they shouldn't really be bothered being interested in football. And that is really, really hard to change. And thankfully, there are now lots of people working just as hard to, to, to repair that damage. But it is going to take time because men's football is so dominant and it's so noisy and it's so uh, relentless that it's re- it is really hard to kind of make your way in that without going into too much detail. You see two answers to, to negative answers to women's football. You see like, well, why are they being given this broadcasting deal when they're only getting 8,000 fans? And the honest answer to that is, well, maybe because it only goes one step along a hell of a long journey to repairing the damage that was done during that 50 years. And secondly, you see, well, um, oh, I, I'm not interested. I'm not interested. Well, that's fine. But there is an audience out there. You know, 11.7 million people watch the World Cup semi-final in 2019 there is an audience out there it's just I think it's just going to take time to build it and and it's really hard not to be impatient because we all want it to happen as quickly as possible don't we um Flo I, w- I was wondering about the, the WSL and obviously that Chelsea and Arsenal and City have all got very strong teams this year and there's going to be a, a, a really enthralling title race potentially um are, are any of those sides uh closer to 
the the, the closing down the European champions Barcelona because obviously last year they they broke multiple records um, in, in Spanish football you know their, their league record was ridiculous and then they obviously won the Champions League as well and the squad of players that they've assembled is is incredibly strong is is there any chance that, it, that one of the English sides will be able to, to sort of outdo them this season or is there still a bit of a gap existing there? I think only time will tell I think England does have the luxury of having the most competitive domestic league because um, in France, you kind of got a two-horse race. PSG won the title last season, but Lyon have just kind of bought all their best players in order to win the title this season. Um, And Lyon will be pushing to challenge in the Champions League again. Um, And Barcelona, like you said, just absolutely just blown away everyone else in Spanish football at the moment. Um, the amount of goals they score is just ridiculous. So I think the fact that England has a very competitive domestic league will push everyone else up. Um, we've also got a group stage in the Champions League for the first time this since. So I think that could be really interesting because you're going to get, I think, more even games and more competition in that sense as well. And more jeopardy because we've only ever had like two-legged games throughout the whole competition. Whereas now when you've got more of a group stage, I think there is a bit more risk as well because they're going to have more opportunities to play more sides. So I think that is only a positive. Might be still a little bit too early. I don't know if this is going to be like the beginning of a dynasty for for Barcelona or Chelsea are going to be able to push them uh, again because obviously for Emma Hayes, and I know she doesn't like to say this, but it, it does feel like the Champions League is so much their focus at the moment and trying to win that and all this investment has got to be about that. But it does still feel like Barcelona will be too good for them. Um, perhaps it will be uh, Arsenal who might be able to challenge more this season. Only time will tell, really. We'll have to wait and see once the group stages get underway in October. But just to follow up on, on what Daniel said quickly as well, I think also when you look at it, over 8,000 fans, Arsenal's first ever competitive game at the Emirates, that's still double that you could get into Meadow Park. So that's still a massive progress. It's just obviously a lot of people in a positive way would have liked to have seen, you know, I was hoping for about 15,000 there. So you could, you you know, you set the expectations so high, like Daniel said, and then you feel disappointed. But actually when you look at it, you know, they'd never had that opportunity before and they managed to double their existing domestic crowd with lots of people who will now probably really want to go to Meadow Park. And that's the main thing. It doesn't matter if you get 20,000 people in the Emirates and you still can't sell out Meadow Park. Like that, that doesn't make sense. So hopefully it's just about creating that longevity. All right. A very positive opening weekend then, in many ways, for the WSL. Still to come on this totally. Uh, If you're listening to this on the 6th of September, Monday, listener will be discussing why. What what it is about the planets aligning that makes that such a significant date in football history. Uh, First of all, though, let's get some odds from Paddy Power with producer Charlie. Hello, listener. It's two down, one to go for England in this international break. Will it be a win in Warsaw on Wednesday for Southgate's men, or could they be poleaxed? Carl Monahan from Paddy Power is here with the answers. Carl, it's Kane v Lewandowski in the Battle of the Skipper Strikers. Yes, indeed, Charlie. It would be great to see these two lead their respective lines. Lewandowski in red have formed so far this season with seven in five for Bayern and all comps. And that he scored against Albania last week, didn't he? His 70th goal for his country. Kane had more of a disrupted pre-season, to be fair, but is slowly getting back up to speed with recent goals for club and country. But skipper strikers, as you put it, Charlie, will be most popular in the first goal scorer betting market. 
But don't rule out a cheeky bet on an outsider Harry Maguire at a double-figured price. He's made a habit of scoring for England at corners. He did it against the Hungarians last week and bagged the winner against the Poles at Wembley back in March, remember? A game in which Lewandowski missed through injury. For the game itself, though, we priced it up as Polo 4-1. to The draw is 5-2. to And England are the odds-on favourites at 7-10. to It's been a big weekend in the women's game as well with the WSL kicking off. A Super League we can all get behind. Will it be three titles in a row for Chelsea this season? Yeah, well, firstly, Charlie, the three-year TV deal makes it great in terms of exposure and accessibility for the women's game. To answer your question, we make Emma Hayes and her three-in-a-row chasing Chelsea the odds-on favourites at 10-11. to 11. The Blues only lost one game all last year, Charlie. The nearly invincibles. They've also added a couple of bodies during the summer window as well, and Lauren James' a signature from Manchester United looks a shrewd bit of business, and that is sure to spice up their attack. Chelsea, Man City and Arsenal were last season's top three. It's highly likely that these three, Charlie, will be involved again in what hopefully turns out to be an exciting title race that we'll see plastered all over Sky and the BBC. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddypower app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording, so over 18 only terms and conditions apply, and when the fun stops, stop. Totally Football League show is out on Monday. When you're done with this, have a listen to that. They'll be discussing the events at Oldham, where play also was temporarily suspended at Boundary Park during a 3-0 defeat at home to Barrow. Fans staging a sit-down protest against the owners in the centre circle. Oldham have lost five out of six games in League Two this season. It's the sort of record you dream of at Nottingham Forest, of course, Daniel. <laughs> now, now. I, I wondered, now, now. given that they weren't playing, whether we could get through without... But no, fair enough. <laughs> OK. Uh, 6th of September, though. Let's have a classic on this day. Uh, because there's something about this date that just makes big things happen. How big? How about a bloody Terry Butcher? Now, I say this, it might not mean anything to you, Flo. I'm not sure. Bloody Terry Butcher? It does. It, I don't remember it kind of, you know, live in the moment, but right. I do. I have seen the the iconic pictures and and clips. Yeah, right. They're scary, aren't they? Really. Yeah, it is. It is pretty grim. <laughs> right. Sixth of September, nineteen eighty nine. It was a World Cup qualifier in Stockholm. Daniel, I'm sure you must have written about this. Uh, I was still at nursery at the time, so right. No, no I didn't mean at the time. But have you not? <laughs> it, it, it's part of your England writing duties, no? Uh, yeah, I think I probably have. It has become a, right. a, a photo which is used as a, a, a kind of an iconification of Englishness, English sporting right. heroism, I think, yes. Blood, sweat and tears. A call to arms, Terry Butcher, who had had a clash of heads which required stitches and a bandaged head, said Butcher, the trouble was there was so much blood, the doctor found it hard to see what he was doing. He only managed to get five stitches in place when the whistle went for the start of the second half. There was still an inch of the wound unstitched. Bobby Robson just told me to get on with it, so on he went and kept on heading the ball. There you go. As far as I'm concerned, uh, I'm not a doctor, but there, there are several warning signs of things that indicate that there's a problem. And if you're finding it hard to do stitches because there's too much blood, that, that's probably, I would say, a red flag. <laughs> uh, T- Terry Butcher as well, who uh, a lot of people will, will obviously... Uh, remember for, for that iconic image and as a sort of blood and thunder defender but I mean he, he's obviously since gone into management um, different coaching and he, he, gave, he gave an interview this year whereby he said that in terms of, of heading the ball especially and obviously that it, it, it's connected if not totally connected to sort of um, impact injuries with head but he said that, that football coaching is evolving and changing at such a rate that heading could soon become 
not part of the game, just just as a natural progress because coaches now are tending to look at defenders and be like, you have to be able to deal with low deliveries into the box because they're harder to defend against rather than just heading the ball away. And the sort of attacking sense has changed in that time too. So it was interesting to see that and to hear someone who obviously has that association as, as you know, a, a kind of blood and thunder defender is saying that you know they actually need to have more technique and, and the focus of football coaching in, in recent years is changing and he does believe that in the next decade or so that heading might not even be part of the game which which would be a really remarkable remarkable change because the, there's been a, a push a gradual push to phase out particularly at youth level the the the, the amount of heading that's done but i've not seen it 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 been discussed in, in tactical terms as, as being on, on the way out as well. Fascinating stuff. Anyway, on the 6th of September in other years, in 1913, you got Woolwich Arsenal's first ever game at Highbury. They played Leicester Fossey, is it, Daniel? Fossey or Foss? Leicester Foss. What does that Foss. mean? Yes. All I know is that there's a shopping centre in Leicester called Foss Park, so I suspect okay. the two are related. All right, it was a 2-1 win in front of a 20,000 crowd at Highbury for Woolwich Arsenal, as they were known. And also, on the 6th of September 1995, also involving England, anybody? Yeah, Renee Columbia goalkeeper. Yes, yes, Daniel. What was this? Well, let's first of all, let's listen to Barry Davis. <laughs> well, the flag was up for offside... But the referee didn't give the offside. <laughs> Unreal. <laughs> I think this is as iconic as Terry Butcher is. This is above him in your England folklore, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm going to come across as a massive killjoy here, but I, 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 it's not that I don't like fun. It's just that, I mean, it's just absolute nonsense, isn't There's it? There's a time it's and a place, nonsense. isn't there? Right. Yeah, the and I suppose a, a friend. Yeah, I suppose a Jamie Redknapp 40-yard overhit pass slash cross in a friendly game is maybe the time and the place. But, um, yeah, it's just nonsense. It's just total nonsense. And also it injured a lot of me and my fellow schoolmates as children <laughs> trying to do it. For anyone who can't remember it, could you just describe what René Higuita did? Yeah, it's basically uh, Olivia Giroud's goal for Arsenal um, a few years ago. That is a We now know as a scorpion kick, but he, he did it amazingly with sort of simultaneously with both feet and more simultaneously is not that he pulled it off although that was amazing but that the ball went absolutely miles it was as if he properly volleyed it which I, I, I don't know how you get that much power on a back heel but yeah I, I still think it was nonsense and Rennie Higuita as well was part of this sort of South American particularly generation of goalkeepers who, who scored a lot of goals and that's that's another sort of change in football in the past sort of decade or two whereby you know goalkeepers maybe you don't have those iconic goalkeepers he scores I think three uh, goals for Colombia he's got about 50 goals in his career and there's obviously Rogério Senni the Sao Paulo and a Brazilian goalkeeper and José Luis Chilever the, the Paraguayan and they so they obviously took penalties but it took a lot of free kicks as well and it's it's hard to imagine that that happening nowadays even though we have Ederson at Man City we always hear about his sort of technical ability but we never see him Taking a penalty, never, never mind a free kick, um, with a chance of scoring. So it's yeah, it's it's something that something that football maybe has lost in, in in those years. Yeah, I was going to say, imagine the imagine the the fun Pep Guardiola could have if he had those sorts of goalkeepers at his disposal. He wouldn't stop. Yeah, yeah. I think also because it was the back in the day when you only saw players like this rarely. 
them doing crazy stuff like this made it seem that there was this incredibly wacky sport going on in the rest of the rest of the world where these kind of cartoon capers were happening all the time. And then coverage came along and showed that it was equally equally plodding most of the time elsewhere in the world. Higuita has had anything but a, a plodding career since his football. In 1993, acted as a go-between for the drug barons Pablo Escobar and Carlos Molina, helping to secure the release of Molina's daughter, who'd been kidnapped by Pablo Escobar, by delivering the ransom money. And he received a $64,000 thank you for his services, for which he was sentenced to seven months in jail. Uh, his approach to his own defending was similarly imaginative. He told the judge, I'm a footballer, I don't know the laws on kidnapping. The judge was unimpressed and Danny went. Crikey. Uh, well, there you go. That's, uh, I think, it for this Totally Football show. Flo, Daniel and Colin, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, totally will return on Thursday to wrap up the remaining qualifying matches and look ahead to return of club football. So do join us for that. Listener. For now, though, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.